Okay, good. 32 is right. Yeah. Nice going. <laughs> hey, so you might want to turn there, Genesis 32. And as you're doing so, let me just uh, mention something to you that uh, would be great for you to uh, participate in if you can. On December 29th, uh, do you see all those beautiful uh, manger scenes that are displayed so wonderfully in our foyer? One of the ladies in our church uh, has volunteered to let us enjoy those this year. Catherine, her name is. And on December 29th, we need helpers to uh, pack them up carefully and then load them up. And so if we have a good team, it, it need not take all that long a period of time. And uh, so we're going to gather together at 9 o'clock in the lobby. Uh, if you're able, just come by for a few hours to carefully handle those beautiful manger scenes. And Lord willing, if we're still here on earth next year, we might get to see them again. So that's December 29th, and that is a Monday, as I believe. Uh, so 9 o'clock in the morning, and uh, anyone could help out, and we surely would appreciate your help. Did I get that right, Brother Chuck? Brother Chuck is kind of head, heading it up, and so I wanted to make the announcement right because uh, otherwise I'll be called into Ch Chuck's office tomorrow. I don't know. He does these things. Did, did you know that? He's very mean to me, and uh, I would like you to pray for him. Okay, we're in Genesis chapter 32, and let me just uh, review. Jacob is on his way back home, you might say. He's been with Uncle Laban for 20 years, and now he's going back to the land of Canaan, which is present-day Israel. Along the way, he nervously is preparing to meet his brother Esau, who Jacob perceives is going to want to seek revenge against him. Because Jacob uh, schemed him, deceived him out of the birthright and blessing. And uh, these hurts die hard. Jacob sends some emissaries ahead of him to try to appease Esau. They come back with a message. Your brother is coming with how many men? 400 men. So Jacob, I suppose, is correct to conclude. Um, this is not your... Welcome, wagon. Why is he coming with 400 men? So he's nervous, um, a little desperate. And for the first time we have recorded in this whole narrative concerning Jacob, he prays. The first time uh, he prays. It's in verse 9. Take a look. And it's really a model prayer. Verse 9. Jacob said, O God. Of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac. He's reminding himself that God is unchangeable as he was with his grandfather, as he was with his father. He is and is willing to be with him, Jacob. O oh Lord, who said to me, uh, God loves to be held to what he said. Did you know that? It's not disrespectful to say, God, you promised. He loves that. God has promised us his presence, his provision. God has promised to use all things for the good. God has promised in having adopted us into his family to bring us uh, to our place of rest one day, heaven. It's good to hold God. God, you said, and that's what Jacob is doing here. Oh, God, you who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy. That's true. 
but it's the first time we're hearing it. I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only, I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two companies. Prior to this, Jacob would have, uh, I suppose, claimed to be a self-made man. I went to Laban's territory with nothing, and I'm returning with all this wealth. He would have laid credit to it, maybe even written a book, Ten Ways to Be Successful in Your Job. Who knows what? Ways to Get Rich. He would have attributed it to his great potential. But now, as his life is passing before him, he's becoming emptied of self, and he finally is calling it what it is. I'm unworthy, but you, God, have been faithful to me. So he says in verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me, mother, with children. For you said, here he goes again, holding God to his word, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Here he's referring back to the promise God made with Abraham in Genesis 12. Jacob is reflecting on all that and holding God to his word. Verse 13, so he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. Now what you're about to see meets with mixed reviews. Maybe this is just oriental Middle Eastern courtesy. Maybe it's Jacob becoming Jacob again. Maybe hot on the heels of his prayer. He looks now away from the God he just prayed to, and he's looking to his own resources to try to deal with the situation. George Mueller was a great giant, a man of prayer in days of old. And I asked him one time, what is the most critical time, Mr. Mueller, with regard to prayer? And he said, it's the uh, first 15 minutes after I say amen. Have you ever prayed, said amen about a particular thing, and then just gone on as if you didn't have that discussion with God at all? Something that's concerning you, you take the concern with you, as if the prayer was just a, a bit of a token, kind of an unbelieving prayer. So maybe this is a bit of an unbelieving prayer. Oh, God, I need you. I'm unworthy. It's your faithfulness that I depend on. And now he's working out this scheme. And so here's what he's going to give his brother. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking cows, and a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, he's giving them everything. Look at that. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Holy Toledo. Maybe Jacob is being Jacob again. So verse 16, he delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself. He said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? You shall say... These belong to your servant Jacob. It's a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he's also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. So that's what he does. He pours out his heart. He says amen. And then he 
begins to assume responsibility for his own well-being. And he, he crosses uh, a feature called the Ford of the Jabok. It's a wadi. A wadi is a, a depression in the ground, oftentimes dry, but it can suddenly fill up with water, rainwater. And so many people lose their lives because the floods come so, so very, very quickly. The Jabok is a wadi. I remember once I was in the Middle East many years ago, and we were on, in Jordan. We were traveling through Jordan and visiting there, and then we were crossing back over uh, on the Israel side of the Jordan River, and uh, we stopped at a place called the Jabok. It was this very place. And it wasn't on the itinerary or anything like that. It surprised me as much as everyone. And I invited the group to just spend some time alone reading through Genesis 32, because I wanted to. I wanted to reflect, oh my goodness, in this area, this is where Genesis 32 took place. This is the Jabok. It runs from the east, crosses the Jordan River, and on into Israel. And there we were, right by the Jabok River. In other words, folks, this is true stuff. Did you know that? This is not Greek mythology. This is the word of God. So verse 23, he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had, and then Jacob was left alone. Wow. Alone time is good sometimes. We'll all crave it after the holidays, won't we? Just get some time alone, reflect on things, take a couple deep breaths. But this solitary time is not so good. Uh, for the first time in his adult life, Jacob is separated from all that which he had depended on, family, friends, livestock. That was the sign of wealth, you see. Now it's just him alone. It, it's an uncomfortable time for, for Jacob, it seems to me. No resources to lean on. And he may have been alone, but he was still very much alive because the text says a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Can you imagine? In the middle of the night, a hand reaches out to him and a wrestling match ensues. It goes all through the night for crying out loud. The text says a man wrestled with him. A man? Hosea doesn't think so. In Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it says this. In the womb, he, that's Jacob, he took his brother Esau by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. Hosea, in commenting on this text in Genesis 32, tells us that this is no mere man wrestling with the mere man, Jacob. This is an angel. And now I want to take it a step further and tell you, I don't think this is a mere angel. I think this is the angel of the Lord, a technical term often used as a reference to the pre-incarnate presence of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, pre-incarnate? Before he became enfleshed, Jesus was, right? Uh, during this Christmas time, we are acknowledging and celebrating the birth of the Lord. But, but, but that doesn't mean he had no existence before he was birthed in Bethlehem. If he's God, and he is, he's pre-existent. He has no beginning nor end. So on Christmas, we're, we're not actually celebrating his birth in the sense that he had no prior existence. We're celebrating the fact that he pierced the space-time dimension. God is apart from space and time. The Christmas event means he pierced the space-time dimension to take on flesh just like us so that we could connect with him and he could connect with us.
So the pre-existent God who always was became a babe in Bethlehem to grow to be the suffering Savior. So uh, what did Jesus do then before the Christmas event? By the way, I'm getting a lot of emails about uh, what do I think? Do I think December 25th is actually the date of the birth of the Lord? No, I do not. Uh, that's number one. Number two, it doesn't matter. We can't know specifically the day that the Lord was birthed. Some are investing a good deal of their life trying to figure it out. Okay, to me it doesn't matter. Let's just as Christians worldwide choose a day where we gather together in celebration for the greatest event in human history that God became man. I don't care what day it is, Tuesday, Wednesday, it doesn't matter to me. Now, December 25th, people will say, has pagan uh, connotations. It does in history. All the more reason, <laughs> it seems to me, for we as believers to give it an entirely different meaning. Folks, I, we live in this world. Did you know that? If you want to be actually free of its influence, then you have to come up with another name for even the months, like August. That's named after Caesar Augustus. Did you, you, mean, you know that? For, for, I don't feel tainted by having a Christmas tree. I know a lot of people do. And the Christmas tree has pagan roots. Did you know that? All the more reason to let children know about the tree of life, about seeking your roots deep into the faith so that you can bear fruit and grow just like this tree, about how the Lord Jesus hung on a tree. So you, know, you can attach these meanings to it. So, and now we're free as Christians to do what we want, but I hope we don't miss, I hope we don't divide at times like this when we ought to be united and about the celebration of the Lord's birth. People tell me, Hanukkah, we should, they actually tell me, Gentile people, we should be celebrating Hanukkah, not Christmas, is, is what they say. Well, that's a good idea. No, I'm kidding, I'm, I'm kidding you there. They're, they're different things. We're, Hanukkah has great significance to it, but the, the, the Christmas event celebrates the birth of the Savior for crying. Hanukkah is about the festival of lights, but Jesus is the light of the world. If he didn't come, we'd still be walking in darkness for crying out. So I don't care if it's December 24, 26, January, March. I, let's just get together as a body of Christ, sing carols to his name, have a great time of celebration, rejoicing in that the Lord has come. He is Emmanuel. So, all right. So, but but we, we take a lot of hits during this time. You know, for our, our church drifting into paganism for you know, all these trees. What do you mean? It's a time of rejoicing and beauty and celebration and all right, what are you going to do? I don't know what's wrong with you Gentile folks. No, I'm kidding here. Okay, so, um, so I have no idea. Oh, oh, yeah, this is what I wanted to tell you. So I think this is an, the angel of the Lord who is the Lord, pre-incarnate appearance. I mean, I mean, he, he didn't just sit around waiting to be birthed in Bethlehem for crying out loud. He made frequent appearances in different forms in the Old Testament scripture. I think this is one of them. And what... Uh, uh, persuades me is what Jacob said in verse 30 down the road here a little bit. Jacob said, I have seen God, God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. You see what I mean? So he attaches divinity to this angel. So uh, could you notice something? Jacob is not really wrestling with him. The angel is the one who started the fight. You know this? That's how God operates. Did you know this? 
when you become a Christian, God will wrestle with us. Why? Because he wants us to lose the fight. Why? Because when we lose, we win. What do we win? We win freedom from self-reliance. Self-sufficiency. And we win uh, the experience of hanging on to God for blessing. That's why Paul said, remember when he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected, not in victory, in weakness. Remember that? So, 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 so the emissary of God, I think it's the Lord himself, is wrestling with Jacob. Now, Jacob still has a lot of fight in him, a lot of self in him, because the fight goes on all through the night, doesn't it? Until daybreak. Some of us are just ornery folk. You know what I mean? We are just intent on being strong in our self. When, I mean, we can't even take the next breath unless God supplies it. I mean, who do we think we are? You know what I mean? So Jacob is, thinks highly of himself. You know, he's a self-made man. He thinks. So he's fighting until daybreak. Now, verse 25, when he saw he, the he is the angel. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him. When the angel saw he had not prevailed against Jacob, he, the angel, touched the socket of his thigh. The angel touched the socket of Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Now people say, Stuart, you're wrong. This can't be the angel of the Lord because Jacob is prevailing. That's the point. You know how he's prevailing? He's prevailing by hanging on. He's prevailing by hanging on until the point when with a mere touch, he is made weak in an area of strength. Folks, we win when we lose <laughs> in fighting against God's ways. That's how he prevails. I mean, the angel could have wiped him out. He didn't want to destroy him. He just wanted to wound him. Why? Because nothing else worked with Jacob except what we could call the ministry of dislocation. Dislocation. Sometimes you have to be dislocated financially, physically, maritally. The ministry of dislocation. Do you mean to tell me God is willing to hurt his kids? Yeah. Why? For the sake of gain. That's why. Again, Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 12. Remember, he had something going on, some physical thing. He prayed a bunch of times. And then he concluded, he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. For when I am weak, uh, then I am strong. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may be in me. You see what I mean? Folks, that's called the normal Christian life, unless you watch too much Christian TV. That's the abnormal Christian life. Health and wealth. That's abnormal. In fact, do you know much Christian TV could not really be played in most of the world? Because most of the world, Christian and otherwise, is not healthy and prosperous. It's poor, impoverished, and afflicted. So all this glitter on Christian TV, what the heck? He's showing that in Poor people around the world, that just doesn't square. This is the normal Christian life, the ministry of dislocation. I'll tell you what happens when that happens to you or me. We ask the two questions common to humankind. We say, why? And then we say, how long? And we never get good answers to either. It's okay to ask the question. You're not going to get a good answer. But God is willing to do it. Ministry of dislocation. Is he willing to cripple us? Yeah. 
Why? Believing in him gets us our salvation. But it doesn't get us dependence on him. There are many Christians who've been saved, but are still quite self-reliant. So there's believing, but then there has to be brokenness. I don't like it, but it's the normal Christian life. After believing, a loving God will allow circumstances that break the self-reliant, self-dependent, self-sufficiency of the people whom he loves. Why? Because when we're weak, we're strong. We prevail when we get empty of self and hang on to him and say, I will not let you go. It's not about my human potential. It's not about believing in myself. I can't be anything I want to be. Oh, God, all I can do is hang on to you for blessing. I'm empty and I'm desperate. That's the ministry of dislocation. So um, the angel dislocates Jacob's hip. No more offense for Jacob. You know what this is like? This is like breaking the arm of a quarterback, breaking the throwing arm of a quarterback. No more offense. That's what happened here. Ministry of dislocation. Jacob is now helpless. All he could do is hang on in desperation. And this he did. And in so doing, that's how he prevailed. He was broken by God. You know what David said one time in Psalm 51, 17? He said, the sacrifices of God. You would think he's going to complete the thought by saying, the sacrifices of God are burnt offerings and grain offerings, you know, all this kind of stuff. No, the sacrifices of God. You'd think maybe if it was modern, the sacrifices of God are giving and praying and Bible study and going to church and supporting missions. and The sacrifices, man, look what David says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? That's the ministry of... How do you get a broken spirit, a contrite heart? Contrite means needy. Well, folks, that's through the ministry of dislocation. That's through loss of a loved one right during Christmas season, for crying out loud. That's being laid off at work. That's getting a cancer diagnosis. That's being in a car accident. That's having a loved one afflicted with something. Whatever the deal is. Ministry of dis- David said that's the sacrifice that uh, God takes seriously. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Is your heart broken? Is it needy? Does it hurt? text says God will not despise that. And we prevail during the times when we are weakest. Because when we're weakest, then God has an opportunity to be strong on our behalf. He can't use a so-called strong person because the strong person won't attribute things to God. But he can use a weak person. Because a weak person, you know, someone will say, wow, you're doing really well. And then that weak person will say, it's not me. It's Christ in me. You know what I mean? That's why the normal Christian life is not smooth sailing. Smooth sailing is not an evidence of your faith. In fact, smooth sailing may be an evidence of the fact that you have weak faith and God can't trust you with the ministry of dislocation. I think it's a compliment when we go through harsh times because it means our loving father who says, I won't expose you to stuff beyond what you can deal with, thinks we can get through this and he can entrust more to us. So I have 
bad or good news, depending on what your perspective is. As you go on with Christ, things are going to get harder. This confounds me because I think it should get easier. As I go on with Christ, I know I should figure stuff out. He should give me a break, you know, mess with someone else. No, 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 no. As you go on with Christ, because he can trust, he can entrust more pruning to us. Pruning. When I was a new Christian, I was reading something in John. It perplexed me. It said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, I will prune you so that you might bear more fruit. And I read that. I said, what in the world? That's the reward for hanging out with God? Pruning. He starts cutting stuff away. That's what pruning is, right? You cut like dead stuff off of trees. What is that? So God, if I abide in you, you start cutting? That's it. And then I realized, man, that is an act of love, of loving God to take that interest in our lives to free us of dead baggage that we don't need anymore. And he does it through a pruning process. And that is, that is a hurtful, that's the ministry of dislocation. You see what I mean? It's not a good thing for Almighty God not to take an interest in our lives. So he does. So it says in verse 26, then he said, let me go. The he is the angel. But I was trying to make the case that this is an angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus himself. And yet, could it be the Lord Jesus who's saying, let me go? The dawn is breaking. I mean, if it's the Lord Jesus, couldn't he free himself from, from Jacob without all this? Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Oh, yeah. The angel of the Lord could have freed himself in about two seconds. I mean, are you kidding me? He could have. That's not the. He wants to be put in this position. Almighty God, who could do anything, wants to be held in this position by us. He wants us to be so persuaded that we can't do anything without him. He wants the ministry of dislocation to render us so empty of self, maybe even so desperate, that we say what Jacob did, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Up until now, Jacob's grasp has not been on God. It's been on his own wit and wisdom. And now he said, I can't let you go until... You bless me. That's where God wants to be. Totally depended on. Totally. But how do we get there? Voluntarily? We get there through the ministry of dislocation. You've experienced it. I have. There'll be more of it. Gets to a point where you don't know how you're going to get through the day. You don't want to get out of bed. You ever gotten to the point where you don't want to live? Don't, you don't have to answer that. Private. You just don't want to live. That's the myth. You get so desperate where you cry out to God. You said, you promised, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. What produced that? Desperation produced it. Prosperity did not produce that. Adversity produced that. See what I mean? Adversity is actually uh, more useful to God than prosperity. Smooth sailing makes us lazy, makes us utter a token prayer to God once in a while, just like Jacob did. Adversity makes us say, I won't let you go until you bless me. See, in this, Jacob is prevailing. He's prevailing over his own human nature, don't you see? And so it says, uh, 
Verse 27, he said to him, what is your name? Now, if this is really God, the Lord wrestling with Jacob, surely he would know Jacob's name, right? Well, he does. God knows everything. Whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's never to gain information. He's omniscient. It's always to give the one asked the question a chance to answer it. So the angel of the Lord says, what's your name? He wants Jacob to hear himself say, I'm Jacob. You know what that means? I'm a deceiver. I'm a schemer. I'm a supplanter. Before God can bless us, we've got to fess up to who we are. You want to be clean? <laughs> you have to admit to God who you are so he can clean you. This thing, I just make a few mistakes now and then. I'm basically a good person, make some bad choices. <clears throat> What's your name? Meaning, what is your character? I'm a person who sins in thought, word, and deed. I'm a person who oftentimes doesn't want to, but I find myself doing what I don't want to. You know what? I'm the kind of person who not only does what he doesn't want to do, oftentimes I don't do what I should do. I'm a person who has a private life I don't want anyone to know about. I'm a weak person. I'm a person subject to sin and temptation. I'm a person who's filled with pride. I'm stuck on self. I can't prevail over self. I'm just self-centered. I'm self That's who I am. You see, God cannot clean us until we say, I wish to be cleaned because this is... This is who I am, you see. So that's why the name is, the question is asked, what is your name? And he said, I'm heel grabber, Jacob. I'm deceiver. I'm, my name is Jacob. I'm the conniver. I am the schemer. And he said, verse 28, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The name change indicates a total transformation in his character for crying out loud. Jacob is emptied of self. He's no longer a self-made man for crying out loud. He's hanging on to the angel and he's wounded for sure. He's experienced the ministry of dislocation. And the name change indicates a radical change in his life. He goes from Jacob to Israel. What does Israel mean? I don't know. I mean, it, I mean there's... You would think we would know what Israel means, but there's a whole kinds of difference of opinion. It could mean the one who fights alongside God, or it could mean the one who God fights for. It, it just, I don't know what it means. All I know is that it's like a step up from Jacob, apparently. He got like a promotion. And then it says in verse 29, Jacob asked him, I mean, the angel asked Jacob a question. Jacob returns the favor. Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? Once again, he asked that question. I mean, if this is God, why do you ask the question? Why do you say, why do you? Because he wants Jacob to get a chance to figure out his motives. You know, in that day, if you knew the name of a superior, it gave you a sense of mastery over the superior. So Jacob is saying, oh, my goodness, I'm vulnerable to you. You know my name. What's your name? I want to be on an equal status. That's what's going on here. It's a, it was an Old Testament kind of a custom. Well, the angel of God doesn't tell him his name because he knows Jacob's motive. He just asks him a question. Why do you want to know? Do you want to know to get to know me more closely? Or do you want to know uh, to use it uh, sometime to manipulate something out of me? You see what I mean? But the text says, nonetheless, he blessed him there. Interesting. How did he bless Jacob? We're not told. Did you know that? 
says he blessed him there. I'm dying to know. What, what, what was the blessing? What did you give him? We're not told. But you know what we are told? He blessed him there. There. What is that a reference to? The place where he got blessed. What's the place? The place of his woundedness. Can you see it? The place where the angel of Yahweh, the Lord himself, afflicted, wounded Jacob. That's the place of blessing. Doesn't that fly in the face of a lot of stuff you see on TV and prosperity gospel and all that? This is adversity good news. I will bless you most richly and significantly at the place of your dislocation. Isn't that something? That's what it says. So Jacob named the place, verse 30, Peniel. For he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel. It's the same thing as Peniel. They're just different uh, spellings. And he was limping on his thigh. Folks at Bethel, do you remember when he was fleeing from Esau? He had a vision of angels ascending and descending on a ladder. He met up with God. He called that place the house of God. That's what Bethel means, house of God. I likened it to salvation. So you might say 20 years earlier he was saved. He came to grips with the presence of God. But it took 20 years to subdue him. He became a believing man 20 years earlier, but he became a broken man 20 years later. That's the Christian life. Forgiveness of sin takes place like that, except with Honesty, the Lord Jesus, as the one who suffered and died in your place, your sins are forgiven. But to grow takes a lifetime. Believing is one thing. Becoming broken is another thing. Why broken? Because God cannot use a self-reliant person. Cannot do it. It has to be, oh God, I know you want me to do this, but I can't do this unless you make me able to do this. Or else you can say, oh God, I can do anything I set my mind on. <gasps> well, man, you need to be stricken in the, in, the, in the sinew of your hip. You are too stuck on yourself for crying out loud. So Jacob would live many, many more years after this, but he would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. Did you know that? I would tell you it's a small price to pay to remember, I am Jacob, you are God. I am limited, you are unlimited. I am weak, I'm the limping guy. You are strong. So when we go through the ministry of dislocation, it maybe would be helpful to remember we're not a victim then, you know what we are? We're a trophy of God's grace trophy of God's grace. He means to show us his grace and bring us through times of dislocation so that we say, as Paul did, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Your grace is sufficient for me. So it says in verse 32, therefore to this day, this is a little odd, to this day, the sons of Israel, Jews, do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. So doctors say this is perhaps the strongest part of the human anatomy. Jacob had to be made 
week where he was strong. This is an example of how um, religionists distort scripture. I do not think this is the intended application (laughs) of the text. Orthodox Jewish people to this day do not eat that part of an animal, the sinew of the hip. In fact, there are trained people who are are skilled in surgically removing that part of the anatomy of an animal. And if there isn't one of those people available, Orthodox Jews won't eat uh, the hind legs of an animal at all. They'll They'll just cut off and get rid of the hind legs entirely if someone can't remove this. I do not think that's the intended application. I don't think it has anything to do with what you eat or don't eat. I don't think it's about food going into you. I think it's about stuff already there inside that has to be dealt with. This whole text is not about what you eat and what you don't eat. This whole text is about knowing who you are and knowing who God is, knowing that you are just a human, quite limited, knowing that God stands ready to act on your behalf. He's the strong one. Knowing that the ministry of, of dislocation is actually a sign of the intense love of God to be that involved with the ones whom he has created and redeemed. For Christ. It has nothing to do with food. This is an example of how religion can just mess up <laughs> Scripture. It doesn't matter what you eat for crying out loud. I mean, some things healthier than others. I got that. Just common sense, but you don't get spiritually defiled by eating pork or Jimmy Dean sausage or, or uh, have you heard this one? What is a Jewish dilemma? Being offered a free ham. <laughs> you heard that one? Yeah. Yeah. It's not what goes in for crying out loud. What is, it's what comes out. So anyway... Uh, That's the application that's made by religious Jewish people, but it's wrong. Now, look, this is what's really going on. This text shows us the process of being in a faith journey with Almighty God. Look, when Jacob left home first, he's running from Esau. He came to a place called Bethel, Bethel, house of God. Returning, he came to a place which he called Machanaim, the camps of God. And then he came finally to this place, which he called Peniel, the face of God. He discovered the presence of God at Bethel. He discovered the power of God at Mahanaim. And now he discovers the face of God at Peniel. And that's the process God wants us to go through. He wants us to know of him, but grow from it to depending on him and grow from it to not just knowing him corporately, but knowing him intimately and personally. Folks, when our day here is over, this is a huge blessing, I think, to be with like-minded people on Sunday. But when this is over, I'm going to get in my car alone. My wife came separate from me. We do that so that we don't fight on the way to church. It's a good, it's kind of a good trick. So anyway, uh, I'm going to get in the car, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a conversation with God. I'm going to say stuff like, thanks, God. Uh, You did things for us we could not do ourselves. You blessed us where we would not be able to bless each other. Thanks for entrusting your word. I hope you were pleased with what happened in there today. and uh, Please make use of it to help out the, the brothers and sisters, members of the family. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to go, I'm glad that's over. I'm going to do that. I'm going to say, man. I'm tuckered out. 
And uh, I'm glad it's over. And now I want to get into some real ratty clothes, watch something stupid on TV, forget about those people. No, but, yeah. I, I am actually going to have a prayer. I mean, that's Peniel, man. That is not, I got to go through a quorum. I got to dress it up. I got, no, that's me and daddy. That's Peniel. That's the face of God. You see, so one thing to know him as Savior, oh, that's wonderful. But then you want to grow to be able to know him as Abba, Father, Daddy, Pop. You want to see him at his best when you're at your worst. And that's why he's going to allow us the experience of being at our worst. Yeah, that's the ministry of dislocating. Now, look, everybody must have a Bethel experience. Everyone in this room. Uh, needs to be able to recall a time when they really, really were affected by the reality of the presence of God, Bethel. And, and then everyone needs to have a Mahanaim experience. It starts with Bethel. If you're not introduced to the reality of a holy God in the face of your sin, not, but that, that's the starting point. But then you have to move on to Mahanaim, where through the struggles of life you realize two camps, that's what it means. Here's my camp, here's my visible earthly life situation, but there is the unseen presence of God no matter where I pitch my tent. So you want to have that, you didn't just save me and give me a boot in the behind, you saved me and will not let me go. You are by my side, I want to be by yours. And then everyone needs to have a pineal experience where you're growing in intimacy with the Lord Jesus, not formality. Oh, no, intimacy, where your conversation is getting deeper and deeper, sloppy, maybe, awkward, maybe. You don't have the right words, maybe. It doesn't matter. Just what's on your heart, you're opening up to God because he's your Abba Father. That's a face-to-face experience. So Genesis 32 has nothing to do with what part of the animal you eat or don't eat. It doesn't matter what you eat. eat. Eat the eyes if you want to. Who cares? It's about going through the process of Bethel, Mahanaim, and then ultimately Peniel. And Peniel separates us from every world religion. Every world religion is about not eating the sinew of the hip, whatever. Just a bunch of rules and stuff. Uh, faith in Christ is moving towards Peniel. Oh, God, I know you personally, and I live to tell about it. You see, I have access to you through the Lord Jesus, who's my mediator. Yeah, that's the Christian life. It's a good chapter, no? I didn't write it. I just read it. Genesis chapter 32, absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I can point to the times. I used to mark it in my Bible, but I don't do it anymore because I don't want anyone to find it and use it against me when I run for president. But I used to mark the times when uh, it was ministry of dislocation of various kinds, and I could take note of the depth uh, of, of understanding of Scripture at those times, not because I was being so spiritual, desperate. Oh, God. I got to hear from you. And then I can, I can see the times. And I remember the events. And I remember how God used and will continue to. It's not that I'm asking for him. Oh, God, bring on more pain. And it's not like I'm not doing that. And when, when the, those times come, I, like you, pray, oh, God, get me out of it. I, I, you know, he can. Do you know he can just deliver us from our problems? But most of the time, he delivers us through them not from them. Remember the Lord Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane? Let this cup pass from me. You know what the Father said? No. 
He delivered the son not from Gethsemane, but through it. I mean, he, he rose from the dead, didn't he? And for many of us, the normal Christian life is to be delivered through our Gethsemane, not from it. From time to time, supernaturally, sure, God can deliver us from Gethsemane. There's nothing wrong with prayer. Oh, God, zap me out of this. Just, just through, with miracle um, act, intervention. Just heal, change, provide. Absolutely, you should pray that. Absolutely. But sometimes the Father says, no. I love you too much to do that. I'm going to bring something out of you by guiding you through the difficult process of dislocation that you're going through right now. I know you think you're going under. You're not going to. And you could say to God, God, didn't you say nothing will come my way beyond my ability to deal with it? Oh, God, I can't deal with this. And the father says, it's okay for you to think that, but it's not true because I would not have exposed you to it if I didn't intend to bring you through it. That's just, you always know that. As intense as the pain is, God would not have exposed you to it if he didn't intend to deliver you either from it or through it. That's just, and you can say, you promised, just like Jacob did. That's right. That's right. He promised. So, Lord Jesus, um, we're growing. We're like Jacob. It took him years to become Israel. What about us? We're growing. Thank you so much that uh, justification is an event. We stand free in your presence, not as debtors, but as kids. But the process of growing out of ourselves and into your likeness, well, that's a lifelong process, which will culminate at the time when you return for us or we go home to be with you. Until then, thank you for sustaining us through all the various ministries of dislocation which you permit to come our way so as to change us, so as to use us, so as to cause us with desperation to cling to you, saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Oh, God, your ways are clearly not our ways. Thank you, however, for revealing them to us through the lives of folks in the Bible like Jacob. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Uh, we will not meet, as you've heard, for the next two Sundays. So as we used to say when we were kids, see you next year. <laughs> God bless you. Have a wonderful, meaningful, and Merry Christmas.